0: Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions, And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and I am so excited today. We are continuing our discussion on race, and we're doing a deep dive. Last week, we had the privilege of having Dixon D. White with us, who offered some pretty Uh, good information, and we are going to follow up with equally good information this week. Um, I would like to start today's program with a quote from the great author James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Today we are inviting to the microphone, a good friend of mine, he is an author who has written a book that we are going to discuss today entitled Inheriting the Trade. Our discussion will cover slavery and racism with, again, the acclaimed author Thomas Norman DeWolf. Uh, imagine, if you would, to discover that you were a descendant of the largest slave trading family in the United States history. How would you use that information to discuss slavery and racism? Why is it necessary to address slavery and racism for America to move forward? Thomas Norman DeWolf is an author, public speaker, trainer, and workshop facilitator, and since 2003 has served as director and manager for Coming to the Table He travels extensively throughout the United States speaking and leading workshops and trainings at colleges, universities, conferences, and other venues. He exposes hidden elements of history and shows how traumatic, unhealed wounds from the past continue to impact everyone today. Such wounds are expressed on campuses and elsewhere as racism, sexism, and other forms of intolerance separation, and hierarchies of human value. With compassion and humor, Tom illuminates a path toward healing and a more hopeful future. Tom is the author of Inheriting the Trade, by, which was published by Beacon Press in 2008, I believe. The story of his experiences in the making of an Emmy-nominated PBS documentary, Traces of the Trade, and co-author, was Sharon Leslie Morgan of Gather at the Table, which was published by Beacon Press in 2012, which won the Phyllis Wheatley Award for Best Nonfiction Biography and Memoir in 2013. The African American Jazz Caucus awarded Tom the 2012 Spirit of Freedom Award for Social Justice. Tom is also a co-author with Jody Geddes of The Little Book of Racial Healing, published by Skyhorse in 2019. Tom and his wife, Lindy, live in Oregon with one of their daughters and two of their 12 grandchildren. Please help me welcome Mr. Thomas Norman DeWolf. Tom, thank you for being here.
1: Well, I, you're welcome, Bill, and it's I'm just honored that you've asked me to join you today and uh, all of your listeners, thanks.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I wanted to to sort of start this story, uh, your journey, into uh, enlightenment, if you will, as it relates to uh, your racial awareness. And I I think the best place for us to start is perhaps at the beginning when your cousin, uh, Katrina Brown, reached out and uh, sent a a, a sort of a mass mailing to, to cousins both near and far. Could you... Start that story and sort of lead us into that journey.
1: Yeah. Um actually I did not know Katrina. Um but where I live in Oregon, um I had a restaurant and uh it was near it was in downtown near the fire hall and and you know we had lots of good customers who were firemen and firewomen. Um and one of these people that worked for the fire department came up to me one day and he said, I think we might be related.
2: Hmm.
1: It would help if I wouldn't drop my phone, right? Um, <laughs> he he said, I think we might be related. My father's middle name is DeWolf. And I said, well, huh. could be. And. And uh, he said, yeah, he's got this book. And I said, the DeWolf book? I said, I've only heard about it. I've never actually seen one. It's a genealogy book that was written, I think it was published in 1905, something like that. And anyway, we ended up, uh, my wife and I, on our honeymoon, part of it went and visited Dave's father, and he figured out that we were six cousins uh, once Mm -hmm. removed, Dave and I. And um So that was 1986, and his dad told me all these stories about the family that I had never heard before, you know, because it's a different branch of the family, but he's telling me how we're related to, you know, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, his aunt was married Mm -hmm. to a DeWolf, and, you know, he refers to Captain John DeWolf in in the book, Moby Dick, and being related to, um, oh, the guy who played... Paul Drake on the Perry Mason T V show was a DeWolf and and mm. uh the the guy who made the, the that poem famous Casey at the Bat, you know, there is no joy in much mighty Casey has struck out. But he mm. performed this like ten thousand times. He's a dewolf. And Drew Barrymore, her great aunt Ethel, was married to the DeWolfs and lived in the mansion in Bristol, Rhode Island, family mansion for many years and and so that's that was my connection to this family. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm related to Drew Barrymore. Um,
2: right. <laughs>
1: and he mentioned the fact that there were slave traders, rum runners, and privateers in the family. But what I sort of had a vision of was, I guess, sort of like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. Yo-ho, you know, these scoundrels, these pirates um but it didn't really make a connection um to me with really the legacy of slavery and the seriousness of our nation's history and, and so that wasn't that was 86 and then fast forward to the year 2000 Dave's the one who got invited um along with 200 other family members that Katrina had reached out to using information from David's father about Who's all related in this far-flung family, but I'm not in that list. I'm just too far away. And Dave's the one who gave me the invitation and said, "You should contact this lady. You like movies. She's making a movie about the family." And uh, so I did, and ultimately was invited to participate. One of ten people, and 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 you know, some of the there was like two siblings, and there were first and second cousins, and I was the furthest. The away i was like seventh cousin from everybody else who participated but Mm. that was my introduction and and participating in this journey of retracing the triangle slave trade um, that this family for 50 years from you know the 1769 until 1820 um, over 100 voyages from rhode island to West Africa, primarily Ghana, um, and then bringing African people to the Caribbean, North and South America, and they had five sugar and coffee plantations in uh, in Cuba, so we, we visited Cuba as well as Ghana, and you know being in slave dungeons, being in places where there were former um, you know what they call plantations, which are you know slave labor camps. Um, mm-hmm. and retracing that route, but also grappling with the history at every step along the way. And so meeting with historians, meeting with African-American people, meeting with Ghanaian people, with Cuban people, and grappling with the legacy of slavery. And and so that was really the introduction to me was in 2000, 2001, um, mm-hmm. because this was not information that was um known at all in my family um nothing i'd never heard of any sort of connection like this um wow, growing up yeah
0: wow so so uh, you know on that journey, so you mentioned that you guys were uh, so so talk to me about Rhode island and and its uh significance in this story as the sort of hub,
1: yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I have done many times is ask people, what's the, if you could name the largest slave trading state in the country, what would it be if people are like Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and nobody guesses Rhode Island. But Rhode Island was responsible for literally half of all the transatlantic slave trading that was done. From this country. I mean, it's a small, rocky state, and so the the real industry in Rhode Island was shipping, and it was whaling, and it was slave trading, and Mm. um, and and so with a with the slave trade, literally half of and the United States, uh, you know, racism. Slavery, the, the foundation of our nation, and still, this country was only responsible for like 3 or 4% of the worldwide slave trade. Um, mm. it, it, you know, we were a pretty small player, but what the United States did was sort of blend capitalism with racism in the creation of. Um, a system of racial hierarchy that puts white people at the top and, and people of African descent at the at the bottom, and uh and and so it it was you know the creation of that of that system of 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 hierarchy um, that, mm. that you know values people who look like me over people who look like you do. And it's been that way from the very, very beginning. And so getting that awareness, um, its it's been something that, and, and Rhode Island, you know, has a long history, like all of the original 13 colonies, 13 states, a long history of racism that impact um, Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, as well as African people, and you know, all of the the horrible abuse of Native people in, in Rhode Island, there's a long history of that as well. And, and Rhode Island has honestly just begun in the past decade or two really grappling with their own history and, and, and dealing with it. And Traces of the Trade had a fair amount to do with that in Bristol. Where, wow!
0: Just know, outing uh, outing that whole history and and yeah, put, you can't I deny mean, it any further.
2: <laughs>
1: well, sure. And, and you know, Linden Place, this house, this mansion, that's you know, it's in public hands. It's a museum now, but was in the family since it was first built in I want to say
2: 1910.
1: Excuse me, mm-hmm. 1810, 1810, um, and it was built all from the proceeds of the slave trade all from profits from the slave trade and and it wasn't until just a few years ago that they began really openly acknowledging that and giving tours through Bristol uh, you know connected to the slave trade and mm. you know the the wolf tavern down at the at the water's edge that was all part of slavery now it's a restaurant um But that was the offices for the slave traders um, back in the day. So it's now, even though there's still a long way to go in really being open and clear about the history, it's it's happening some. It's more in the curriculum now. And I, I think that's one of the big challenges for me. How is it that I, you know, I don't know my own family history But I don't know my nation's history. Um,
2: Mm. You know,
1: I don't know. You know, it's just not taught. What's taught is the Civil War. The South is bad. The North straightened out those horrible races in the South and won the Civil War. And then, you know, Brown versus Board of Education and Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and but good god look where we are today with the current republican administration and all the dog whistle racism that exists it's like our education system has let us down. Wow. And, um I think that's part of what a big part of what we as a nation need to grapple with is is honestly uh dealing with our with our history and the impact that it has today.
0: Yeah. So so Tom, you know, when you discovered this uh all of these these uh truths about uh racism and the slave trade and, and that being largely uh in in the, the East Coast, uh and dominant in the East Coast, because I mean there are certain things that we that we do know and we acknowledge, but I don't think we put two and two together, which is you know, we acknowledge that slaves built the White House, you know, but it's like, what do we think that they were just sort of, you know, uh, you know, caravaned up from Mississippi Cotton Field, you yeah. know what
2: I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> to, well, in order to the thing, arrive though, there just to I, be yeah. builders?
1: I mean, when I'm <laughs> reading that in 1745, <clears throat> when you look at the census in the state of Connecticut, half, of the ministers, Christian ministers in that state owned African people. Mm. And, you know, it's like, how can you be an itinerant preacher going out and preaching the gospel and saving souls unless you've got somebody to take care of your house? Mm. Uh, And so you own enslaved people. I mean, and there's, you know, the periods of time where in Rhode Island, something like 15% of the population was black and enslaved. Um, no. and that's you know part of the history that is becoming more known now, but who knew? I never knew that virtually all thirteen colonies at all thirteen states slavery was legal and practiced and and built the economy it allowed this country to rapidly become a world power because you got free labor to build everything and, right you know right. From people that you stole from another land
0: yeah wow and, and it's important to note that you know as we refer to to the real status of people that this was viewed as property <laughs> so it, it wasn't a human quality uh placed on that um which is the very founding of our nation in fact um yeah, yeah. as the constitution reflects uh yeah yeah that's tough stuff um Yeah, I find it very interesting. Uh, One of the most fascinating pieces that you have mentioned was, again, the dominance and the the effect of and and the role that slavery played in the East Coast. And there does seem to be a tremendous denial and the ease of being able to blame it on those folks in the South. You know, (laughs) I think it's backward folks in the South or whatever, um, which is completely false. You know, it's a a tremendous deflection, you know. So, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, you know,
1: no question. I mean, and a lot of people will talk about the well-intentioned, good-hearted, liberal, progressive people in the north, and the reality is that you had all the sundown towns in the north where black people could be during the day because we need you to work, but you're not allowed to be here at night. You got to get out of town and stay somewhere else. Places like the state where I live in Oregon, where you know, the the first the when the constitution was passed, it was passed with a provision that we're gonna be a free state, not a slave state, but at the same time no black people are allowed to live here. It was written into the Constitution.
0: Wow. And, and it was wow. in the
1: Constitution until the nineteen twenties. And so the con the, the the reality of that is we're we're here now in the year twenty twenty and I live in one of the whitest states in the nation. As a result. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and yeah. and and there's there's some there's some uh, Oregon news going on also at this point. But we're gonna we're gonna take a little pause right now. You're listening okay. to Bill Myers Inspires with my guest, Mr. Thomas Norman DeWolf. We'll be back in just a minute.
3: Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves?
0: You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back. Our guest today is author and uh, tremendous human being, Brother Thomas Norman DeWolf. We are talking about the impact of racism and slavery in this nation. And you just brought up something just a moment ago, speaking of Oregon, uh, which is where you are from uh, in Bend, Oregon. Uh, uh, tell us about the, the what's going on in Oregon right now. And what is your thought about that?
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's gosh. Well, I mean,
1: Oregon right now is being occupied in a certain sense by federal troops ordered by the Republican administration to um, supposedly protect the federal building in Portland. And and so, as you know, anybody who's following the news knows that you've got the federal troops without name tags, without um, charging people, without giving any reason, are just pulling people off the street, putting them into a vehicle, and taking them away. And my understanding is. I I don't know that they're being arrested. I don't know that they're being charged. I'm reading more and more stories now that are coming out from people who have been victims of this abuse. Um, But it's, you know, here I live in this incredibly white state. I mean, my town is 93 94% people of European descent. I think the state is 90%-ish. Um, So you've got a whole lot of white people watching for Black Lives Matter in the state of Oregon and signs up all over my little town and um, in in towns that I just never would have imagined before. It's like that there's one silver lining to um, racial awareness over the past few years. It's the fact that we've got a president and Uh, and a significant number of his enablers and supporters in Congress who are um, being overtly and openly racist using, you know, the kind of dog whistle language um, around Confederate statues, around states' rights, around, you know, you name it. But the silver lining is a whole lot of people of European descent are waking up. And recognizing that um, it, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is critical to the transformation of our nation into a more just and equitable place. And you know, you've got a Republican administration, and I'm, I use those words specifically because it's not just the one guy at the top; he's got all of his supporters as well. So this Republican administration appears to be targeting locations that he will unlikely carry in the election in November, so he's proving he's a tough guy by going after places that are run primarily by um democrat uh voters and democratic elected officials and Portland happened to be the first place that that he sent in these these thugs literally. Um, to uh, try and show that he's a tough guy of a, a law and order um, administration um, uh, I, it's just it, it. honestly it feels like an act of desperation and if it wasn't so deadly serious it would be funny
2: and there are a lot of
1: political cartoons coming out about it but it's, a, it's an eerie time um, to be where I live right now and it, it you know, Bill, what it what it strikes me is that we're in this place right now that's become like a perfect storm. It feels like there's three um aspects to this. And one is this particular Republican administration and their tactics and the words that they use, the actions that they take. But in addition to that, you had the death of George Floyd which felt like a real tipping point. I mean, there have been a lot of people who have been murdered um, by police, a lot of black people who have been murdered by police. Um, but there was something about George Floyd's murder that pushed everything, uh, turned the, the volume up dramatically um, in ways that have really caught a lot of attention. Um, And so the Black Lives Matter movement has really um, caught on in, in a lot of places that it hadn't prior to. The third piece of this, which I think is equally important, is this coronavirus pandemic. Because what that resulted in is this huge unemployment, a whole lot of people at home, a whole lot of people being able to watch more news, pay closer attention to what's going on in the world, and mm-hmm. to have the time to protest, to have the time to do this work, to read books, to watch movies, to learn more about the legacy of slavery, and it's happening we've had with coming to the table the organization that I've worked for since um twenty thirteen is and I've been involved with it since the beginning since two thousand and six we've added something like seven hundred new members in the last forty five days.
0: Congratulations. And, That's awesome.
1: Well, it is. And it's largely, not all, but largely white folks saying, I, you know, essentially a, sort of a common theme is, I didn't realize how bad it was. And there's, you know, I, I understand people saying, well, how can people be so ignorant? And what I would say is, first of all, those three things the pandemic, the, the, Black Lives Matter uh, movement and this Republican administration, those three things combined have created this perfect storm where you would end up having hundreds of new people interested in coming to the table. And I'm sure the same thing is happening with Surge, with NAACP, with so many organizations doing anti racism, anti oppression work that there's a lot more interest in it now. But I, I, you know, how can people be so ignorant that we wouldn't know? And I will tell you that's how the system works. It's for mm. people like me to remain ignorant because that's what props up the system. When I don't know, then I can't deal with these issues. And it's not, you know, like I'm overtly taught but that's how that's how the system works. Um yeah. it's to keep things hidden from me. That, that would question my worldview. Does that mm. make sense?
0: It absolutely makes sense. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm immediately reminded once again of the quote that I started the show with, um, which I believe that perfect storm mm-hmm. notion. And I want to repeat that one more time. James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it's it is faced. So what yeah. what you were talking about as far as the pandemic keeping people at home, the dog whistles that are sort of outing all of the racist uh tendencies and and cultures sort of bubbling up, coupled with Black Lives Matter. Again, you you know, we are forced to look at it right now. People have the opportunity and and not much else to do uh with a pandemic looming. Um, they are looking at this, and the, it is causing, I believe, personal inquiry. Yeah. Personal inquiry. Would you agree? Yeah,
2: yeah
1: absolutely. And I think that the thing that, that strikes me is that <clears throat> once people – you know, I, I remember when I came home from – the what the the journey that became my first book, Inheriting the Trade and the film Trace of the Trade. And my shortly after returning home, my parents were celebrating their fiftieth wedding anniversary and had a big party in Southern California. Well, there's a whole lot going on then like there is now. Then we get home from this journey and eight days later is September eleventh. Mm. 2001. And so, uh, in fact, on September 11th was the date that editing was supposed to begin in New York City for Traces of the Trade. And obviously that got shut down and money dried up and so it took a lot longer to complete the film. And so the film and the book both came out in January of 2008. So, you know, seven long years. But when I first got back, my, so September 11th, and then two months later is my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And I'm down in Southern California, and I'm talking with the only black man in the church that I grew up in, Mr. Bailey. And I, I told him, I said, you know, can I talk to you? I said, I learned all this history I never learned in school here in Pomona in Southern California where I grew up, where I've known him all my life. And and I said, it just absolutely stunned me. And he looked at me and he said, Tom, we've always known that truth. That's always hard in our schools. And he said, you know, one thing your mother was always disappointed is that you, you know, decided not to be a minister after going to college to study to be a minister, that you didn't because she was really looking forward to being a minister's mother and she said mm-hmm. and and he said now look how god works he said now you're going to be a minister after all because once you know the truth you're responsible for that truth and now you're going mm-hmm. to minister to people with this truth about our nation's history and if yes, i have never forgotten that i mean we jumped into each other's arms and you know the tears on our cheeks um It was just a a really powerful moment. But that responsibility for the truth. So as someone finds out, you know, their ancestors owned people or they just simply learn about our nation's history and feel a personal responsibility, which I think is what's really important. Because I've had people tell me, I'm glad I'm not you. I'm glad I'm not related to people like that. And it's like, do you suppose you're related to people that wore cotton clothing? that drank tea or coffee or used sugar, tobacco, indigo, um, ate rice. You know, the wow. the, the, the the entire <laughs> economic engine of the entire world was based in slavery. That was the fuel. So there's nobody that isn't connected to this history. And um, so if you look at your family's history and you've lived in this country long enough, you'll find a connection to enslavement. But don't bother. You've still got an obligation and a responsibility, and a connection, and a, and a, the privilege of having white skin. And and mm. so part of the work is getting past that, the, those feelings of guilt and shame, getting past those feelings of fragility, and and getting to a space of doing the work, which is which is where, for me anyway, you know, coming home from this big journey. It's like, oh, my God, this is horrible. What's next? And that's really the question people need to ask of themselves is what's next? What can I do next that can make a positive difference, that can help create a beautiful world we all know is possible? What can I do? And, and that's yeah. where I think coming to the table and the coming to the table approach can be really helpful to people. Um, that that offers uh, a pathway, offers an approach to racial healing that is workable, that is doable, that is done in community, that there's a lot of support for.
2: Yeah,
0: it has to be done together. There, there has to be a coming together. We we must make connection uh, yeah. in in order to do that. You know what I mean? And and uh, have frank and open. Um, uh, heartfelt dialogue, in order well, to get there. Well, I, I think so. Honesty. I mean,
1: there's a lot of people who will say, "Well, Bill, talking is just talk. We need to take action." And the thing about the coming to the table approach is it acknowledges all of that. It's sort of this book and approach because it's, you know, it's, it's grounded in theories and practices that have been studied and and tested things like strategies for trauma awareness and resilience to trauma um, both historic and present day trauma and that if we don't deal with the trauma and heal ourselves from trauma whether it's historic or present day we pass it on to our kids Um, it's grounded in restorative justice principles It's, it's uh, grounded in conflict transformation in spirituality, um, and the the approach itself has four pillars. And the first is understanding, acknowledging, studying all of history, so that we're we're you know working from a, a place of common knowledge about the legacy of slavery in our nation's history. The second pillar is like we just spoke about, relationships, building connections, authentic and accountable relationships, uh, both within and across racial lines, um, for the purpose of working together um, and, and having doing so with people that we know and trust. Um, the third mm. pillar is healing by any means necessary. Perhaps it's in your faith community through prayer. Or meditation it's apology it's reparation it's music it's yoga it's dance it's self-care whatever means we can use um, to heal these racial wounds we do that together and then the fourth pillar is taking action to undo the systems and structures of racial oppression and injustice in our society in our communities and so, taken together, without any one of those being the priority, but all four of them being essential, it it it, it creates uh, uh, a new system, a new way of approaching the world that will lead towards racial healing. And that's what, you know, when Jody and I wrote the little book of racial healing, and another, you know, I think another 10 or 11 writers contributed illustrative stories to that book, including Sharon Morgan, my co-author for gathered the Table.
2: Yeah, Um, yeah. But
1: The Little Book of Racial Healing pulls together the entire coming-to-the-table approach along with a whole series of recommended readings for people to learn more about each of the aspects of this approach. And the whole idea... Behind this is, yes, we're in this together, and we have work to do together. And this is what the work is. Um
2: And yeah. it's, it's yeah.
1: liberation. It's truth-telling. It's transformation. It's not, you know, I used to use the word reconciliation, and mm-hmm. I don't anymore. Because it's like, okay, I'm married, and if my wife and I get into a big fight, Reconciliation is getting us to a place where we are back at that point of love and trust again. That's reconciling. Well, we've never had a point of love and trust between um, European Americans and African Americans in this country. That good point. Good relationship has never existed. So it's not reconciling, unless you use reconciling to getting back to our best selves and sort of this, infinite spiritual approach to looking at that word but really it's transformation it's creating a new way of looking at life a new way of 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 living together in terms of justice and what have
2: you
0: yeah. yeah, and it's recognizing it's it's recognizing you know the, the divinity and as well as the humanity in each one of us. Yeah, you know, and, exactly. and being yeah. able to see that. I always love Namaste, you know, the idea of I see I see the God in you. That is such a very powerful way to mm-hmm. greet mm-hmm. another individual mm-hmm. that has always struck me as very powerful. We are going to take a, a brief pause. We thank you for joining us today and stay tuned while we continue our discussion with Thomas Norman DeWolf. Thank you so much
3: Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email becomeahost at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com.
0: You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back with our special guest today, Thomas Norman DeWolf, and we are in the midst of, here at Bill Myers Inspires, a series of discussions Uh, regarding the tough topic and tough discussion of race. And uh, I am pleased to have had our first guest last week, who was uh, Dixon D. White. Today we have Thomas Norman DeWolf. Next week we have his co-author, Sharon Morgan, who will be uh, illuminating us with information regarding her ministry, her work, which deals with our black ancestry you can imagine that that's quite a challenge uh particularly when uh we see so many people who enjoy learning about their history and their lineage and they go you know rejoice in ancestry.com just imagine if you are a black person in this nation where uh, you can only go back so far (laughs) uh, before you may hit a wall so sharon morgan has been kicking down the doors and doing the deep work to try to reconnect that history of black people and their African ancestry. So we applaud her and we will have her here with us next week. And then the following week, we will have Thomas Norman DeWolf and Sharon Leslie Morgan together discussing their book, Gather at the Table. So please stick with us for this important series. And it is such a blessing to have Thomas with us now. And, you know, Tom, you were just talking about your work with, uh, with the uh, coming to the table. And I just want to make sure that I think it's, and, and as we had talked about before, I think it's so very important that we are able to connect people who are curious, who do have questions, who are open and do know that there's something to this Black Lives Matter movement and are prepared to sort of inquire, look around for resources that they can engage in. And uh, and I just want to explore that as we continue because we're looking for solutions and ways that positive ways that people can make a difference and and find the information and find community that they can connect to in a safe way um, that allows them to uh, discover a little bit more about themselves. So if you would take us down that yeah. path a little bit, yeah, you know,
2: sure.
1: I mean, coming to the table. Um Anybody can access the website, comingtothetable.org, comingtothetable.org. And there's just a wealth of resources there, um, you know, that people can understand what, I mean, the focus of Coming to the Table, really, the, the, the vision that Coming to the Table has for the United States is of a just and truthful society that acknowledges and seeks to heal from the racial wounds of the past. slavery and the many forms of racism that spawned and so what coming to the table does is provide leadership and resources and a supportive environment for everybody who wants to do this work and um, you know with a focus on healing the wounds from racism and so you know having this whole approach with the four pillars that we discussed earlier um, a particular set of values that um, highlights the importance of inclusion, respect, and tolerance, honesty, truthfulness, transparency, you know, compassion, love, peace, nonviolence. Um, there's all of this information is available on the website. There's just mm-hmm. a, a wealth of resources regarding genealogy, um, mindfulness. Uh, reparations, um, and and just a a whole wealth of information, you know, books, films, stories by various members and other uh, useful resources, articles, recommended films and books, and what have you. So, um, and then, you know, people can become members, which... As much as we appreciate financial support, you can join for free. And yes, you will be asked to contribute so that we can keep up with all this tremendous growth. Um, but it's not a requirement, um, to become a member. And once you're a member, you get the monthly newsletter that, that you know, just shares the, the, all the, the local group meetings that are taking place. There's 42, uh, local groups currently in 16 different states. And, wow. Uh, and, you know, we've got close to 5,000 subscribers to the monthly newsletter. We've got a monthly learning series going on right now, uh, the next of which is um, focuses on family history that Sharon is part of, actually, and that's uh, two days from now on July 26th, Sunday and that recording will be available soon after that people can watch. But we've had this monthly series where we've had a couple hundred people signing up for each one.
0: So is that Um, going to be accessed on the website, uh, on the comingtothetable.org, on the website Um, itself?
1: People can sign up for it there. Okay. um, Yeah. And so it's, you know, on the events calendar. They'll see this Sunday, and they can certainly sign up for it there. Um, Okay. and uh or watch it after either way. And we've got a monthly guided meditation program. Um there's just so many resources available um for people, whether they're writers, whether they're looking for their own family history, wanting to connect with people um that they're connected to through the legacy of slavery, um, whether they're writers interested in writing for the, you know, the bittersweet blog. Um, it, it's it's just become an amazing network um, was coming to the table, both online and in person. Although right now, I mean, you mentioned at the yeah. beginning, a lot of the public speaking that I do well, you know, the pandemic has brought so much of our lives to a screeching halt or a screeching difference, I guess,
0: and
2: mm.
1: most everything the time we come to the table is being done online right now. Um, okay. But we're not slowing down. Yeah.
0: You know? Oh, no, this is the time. This is the time. And yeah. and yeah. discussions like this and platforms like this um, are the ways in which we we can get that out. And I'm certainly... Proud to to assist in any way possible, and I'll be well, signing up my membership here in just a minute <laughs> as soon as we get off the show. Very, of shows, very
2: much appreciated, Bill.
1: It's yeah. know, it's always so good to work with you.
0: Yeah. So I want to just take a moment and just sort of share uh, our story. Uh, as you mentioned, you mentioned creativity, and you mentioned uh, compassion, connection, and I just wanted to share. Uh, how Tom and I came to to meet one another, and it was uh, I was president of the African American Jazz Caucus in about was at 2012, and we had a uh, an annual big event where we honored different jazz legends. And one day it occurred to me that jazz we were only addressing jazz as a music art form, and I wanted to include our definition of jazz as a culture and how that culture was the, uh, the, the predecessor to the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King spoke so eloquently about that in a 1964 Berlin Jazz Festival speech when he cited jazz musicians as the forerunners of the civil rights movement because these were the exceptions that could come in and play the music. These were the exceptions that could come in and interact and play with white musicians. Uh, there was this wonderful drama that was occurring. It was the Jazz Age that ushered in uh, women uh, women uh, exploring their rights when they cut their hair uh, short and wore flapper dresses. This was all during the Jazz Age, and so we we must acknowledge that uh, women were coming out and and, and exploring and and self-expression of themselves, just as the musicians were. So it was a very powerful time. And so I wanted to implement an award that honored the other jazz musicians, the non-musicians, who were also in the good fight as it relates to social justice and working towards civil rights. And this is how I came to acknowledge Tom DeWolf uh, and his work with inheriting the trade and that sort of thing. So, Tom, uh, it was a great pleasure to award you with that, along with the great uh, uh, African-American author Mari Evans for her work in literature. It was just a tremendous thing. And so I just want to acknowledge that that was one of the finest moments uh, for me, was to be able to uh, acknowledge your work on slavery and racism and your ministry as it is, uh, in this country. And uh, again, I thank you for your work there, sir.
1: Well, I, I not only appreciate your kind words, Bill, but was just really humbled to be included in that amazing company um, when that award was made. And, you know, you remind me of what a small world this is when we pay attention. And I, I think you'll remember this story. I used to have a club here in central oregon um that was uh it was a part restaurant part movie theater that we also Mm. did live music and live comedy
2: Uh, i was telling
1: you one time about when ray brown played as part of the la4 that played at our club and ray brown is like gosh one of the most famous jazz bassists in history and
2: My dad was a
1: huge Ray Brown fan, and I remember when he was playing, I just held my phone up um, into the music room so that my dad could hear Ray Brown playing. (laughs) And then you told me the story about when Ray Brown uh, passed away right there in your town of Indianapolis, and that the last bass that he played was your bass.
0: Yeah, it was my amplifier. Yeah. That's right. He used it every time he came into town, and that was uh yeah, the final moment of Ray Brown, and uh what a and tremendous. That
1: extra, that extra little bit of connection between you and me that, that, that I have always really appreciated. The fact that we have this connection through, uh, yes, the African American Jazz Caucus, but jazz music itself and Ray Brown um,
2: specifically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: that is so awesome. music
1: and jazz in particular, oh my gosh, talk about something <laughs> that breaks down. I mean we talked about Jackie Robinson breaking down the color barrier in baseball, you know with the support of Branch Ricky and the Dodgers. Well, yeah. you look at jazz music, that's the place man yeah. where where people were breaking down barriers of race because if you can play music you belong
0: absolutely and 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 risking their lives at the same time many times risking their lives when they tour through the south and the racist south and that sort of thing tom it has been a pleasure and we will continue this conversation here in a couple of weeks next week we're going to have your your partner out here uh sharon morgan telling us about her work with Our Black Ancestry. It's been a pleasure to have you with us today uh, here on Bill Myers Inspires. And we are so happy to be here on the Inspired Choices Network um, here every Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again, I am so honored and thank Mr. Thomas Norman DeWolf for being with us today. And so we hope that you'll tune in for the rest of our series as we continue our deep dive into racism in America. So, once again, I'm your host, Bill Myers, and you've been listening to Bill Myers Inspires. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll hear you here. We'll hear you here. We'll see you here next week, same time, Friday, 3 p.m. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word, and we'll see you here next Friday. Have a wonderful day.